The Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones. Chapter 2. Quiet. It's a cloudy and cool Canada day, feeling more like fall than the 11th day of summer. I've avoided the library and all human contact today, confining myself to my cozy room. Admittedly, the place is a mess, but a controlled one. I enforce what I call a silo method of organization in the seeming chaos of this room. There are newspapers piled and generally discarded there by the couch, for example, and personal toiletries covering the entire top of one of the dressers, but nothing in any one category is located in more than one place. There is no can of shaving cream down there among the newspapers. There is no clipping from the gazette absorbing aftershave lotion or the coagulated excrescence from the plastic-capped top of a tube of toothpaste. I was one of those ill-treated kids who would segregate the foods on his middle-class dinner plate so that, to take an example of a combination of atrocities that I cannot stomach at all now, the mashed potatoes would not touch the green peas, and neither would touch the well-cooked, immaculately sliced roast beef and gravy. Oh, horrid gravy would never be allowed to sully any of them. My father chided me for taking so long to finish a simple meal. My mother felt that I was merely playing with the one outlet for her creative expression, and my sister teased me mercilessly and, hateful wench, would poke her fork into one of the piles when my parents weren't looking and try to mix them all up. Where was I? My room. These days there is no one to threaten the controlled chaos, and I have to admit that I have softened a little over the years anyway, in that I do allow a mess at all, and in fact have grown used to being more casual about such relatively unimportant things. I was a terror at Toronto U, continually insisting that the staff lounge be maintained at least at the barest minimal standards of order. What what teenagers they were, my former colleagues, cleaning up their room only when the beleaguered adult finally enforced what what one would have expected to be done voluntarily. I chose various methods, neither of which ever had an effect that lasted more than a couple of days. I provided them with humorous distractions and incentives, pathetic little didactic cartoons clipped from the magazines strewn all over the place. One featured a man standing in the middle of the square formed by four huge piles of paper. The punchlines all escaped me now, but this one was suitably witty without being so esoteric as to defy the comprehension of some of the junior faculty, notably that Austin specialist from Deer Lake. Something about Babel or Babel or the Bible and then a tower of books and, well, you get the idea. Other times I strategically placed index cards with quotations about order and neatness written across the blue line furrows, and the key word calligraphically, boldly, but clearly on the red line fence at the top. I was teaching Swift during that time, and so much of the of the imprecations were drawn from Gulliver's Travels or The Tale of a Tub, or even from some of the more obscure works. Several of them I wrote in Bustrophedon style, and I took a nasty delight one day in watching the department head buzzle over the inscrutable reversals. My least effective method, as I desperately sank to the level of my adolescent cohorts, was to lock the door and post a notice, using official stationery I had filched from the supply room to which the department 
to which the departmental secretary had granted me access when I interrupted her in the middle of a phone conversation. I noticed that the staff room would be closed until everyone signed an agreement, conveniently posted right below, to keep the lounge clean and neat. Nobody thought that was very funny, especially after the fourth or fifth time, and I generally returned to find both pieces of paper in shreds and scattered in and around the garbage can, mostly around. I was called to the department head's office after that routine started to get a little old. Jesus, Andrew, what are you trying to prove, he asked me. The place is a sty. I'm just trying to encourage some basic hygiene. Encourage? They're livid now, and I'm having a hard time mustering the energy to defend you. I never, never did it after that, but I don't think it's a coincidence that within nine months of that final incident, I was gone from TU. That wasn't the only problem, but it didn't help. In my own room, the continual internal debate is whether I should keep perfecting the silos or just get rid of a few things, perhaps a lot of things, perhaps even a silo or two. In any case, I realize with some tincture of shame that the whole effort is for domestic control. Some drab psychology textbook I was leafing through recently referred to the desire for control as stemming, Yes, that word exactly, as if any part of the course of a ragged life could resemble the beauty of a flower stemming from the lack of control in childhood. A sister who wouldn't knock before entering a curious boy's bedroom. A mother who demonstrated no respect for my clothing suggestions. A father, well, the less said the better. I hate to appear as the embodiment of a psychological truism, but a fact is a fact. I crave control. At Toronto University, even though the main impetus for my leaving stemmed from the class of clowns that I found myself surrounded by, some part of it, let's say 10% for the mathematically inclined reader, was because life was so frantic, so hectic, so uncontrolled. I enjoyed having only the two classes, one Tuesday, one Thursday, both finishing conveniently around lunchtime, but those were two glorious distinct points from which radiated a blinding array of activity. Misspelled essays to correct, exams, tests, midterms, and other variations. Committee meetings whose agendas indicated only an hour, but during which the chair invariably droned on and ended up at one or other digression. Now, I'm not saying that my wife is a shoplifter. And at nearly two hours, there was more checking of watches than taking of notes. Students dropping by my office at hours clearly not covered by those posted in Times New Roman 16 point on my door. Evaluations, promotions, letters of reference solicited by this incompetent Nabokovian or that specialist in a 17th century poet whom I frankly had never heard of. I shiver even recounting the selected details. My leaving the university was not quite a boon to my life or to my career, but it was not without several advantages which I cherished even as I struggled with righteous anger, rejection, fear. I felt relieved of a burden of unpredictable demands on my time, people assailing me from all directions, always asking me for something. Granted, it was my job to be there for them, but I spent many hours holed up in my ratty little office between assaults, fantasizing about some fresh-faced student stopping me in the middle of an explication of Rasselas and saying, and what is it I can do for you, professor? But my room, 
The important practical fact, all aesthetic concerns aside, is that no matter what the state of it, how it looks, I am able to find anything within seconds. Tenants of sparer apartments and owners of well-appointed beige mansions can generally not make such a claim. I am not professionally trained in psychology, though I do consider myself a long, long, lifelong student of human behavior and interaction. But I have wondered about the psych- psychological trait which manifests itself in this particular domestic habit. That is, to put it a little crudely, what this says about me. I ascribe it to a latent desire for order, for control, as I've said, but in the context of an acceptance of the fact that overall and the environment is unordered and uncontrollable. For the same reason, I prefer public gardens and parks over static and angular organization of squares and gridded streets. I do want the trees and the grounds to grow with a certain degree of wantonness, but not to be allowed to overtake the scene so much that a sense of order is lost. Quaid, this murder victim, was evidently a loner in the city. The police have identified no family members at all, not just in Nosting, but anywhere in the vicinity, and not even any friends have stepped forward to express grief or provide information. The rumors and half-truths as reported in the various media are contradictory. On television, he is a mentally ill eccentric with a small fortune in the bank. On the radio, he lives in squalor and earns a subsistence income by collecting bottles on recycling nights in various neighborhoods. And in the beloved Gazette, he has never worked, has no home, and is, quote, a complete mystery to the authorities, unquote. I myself have not been able to glean much more than these or to confirm one or the other, and the grayness and undependability of the supposed facts confirm the necessity of my research project and make me even more determined than I have been than I have been to find out, as grand as this might sound, the truth. I set out the next morning on the first foray of my investigation like a little boy with a butterfly net. I have absolutely no idea what I am doing, what to look for, how to proceed, what I might do if I found anything relevant. At the intersection where the murder took place, I stand and try to compose myself. There is something about the scene which makes me wholly uncomfortable. I hear drumming in my head, a man was killed here, like a piped-in mantra. I try to picture the whole sordid, messy business, one human doing away with another, and my lack of success with that particular subtraction reminds me of my poorly developed math skills. Turning slightly, I stare up the street to where the body ended up, and that journey is even more of a strain on my poor head. I have a flash of negativity, a sudden lack of self-confidence that I will never be able to make it through this damn thing if I can't force myself to stare hard at a few facts. A car horn goes off, though I am not sure if it is directed at me. Perhaps in my reverie I was tending to wander into the street and rechristen it with another death. I sit on a bench and feel better almost immediately as I am provided with a solidity that I couldn't seem to achieve on my own wobbly legs. My confidence, volatile ever since my youth, returns, and I take out a notebook and begin writing a few things down. No system, none of the careful composition that my academic writings used to require, just rough notes as they come to me. 
I fill a few pages, which in the end don't seem to amount to anything substantive, but I am happy to have broken through the block. I try to piece together the logistics, how a body could be killed, dragged, and mutilated, and my first conclusion is that it didn't quite happen the way it seems. Those rough notes offer up only possible self-mutilation and dragged by someone else, both of which on reflection suggest logistics even more unbelievable than the obvious. With only the slightest turn of my body, I can see the exact spot where the actual murder took place. The police were very forthcoming to the reporters. Something is shiny there, and I immediately get up from what has been a comfortable perch and walk over. I bend down and extract from a slight indentation in the pavement a small triangle of metal, not more than a couple of millimeters on each side. It glints like a forbidden jewel when I place it on the tip of my right index finger. I squeeze my thumb on top of it to keep it safely in place as I return to the bench. On closer examination, I can see that one of the sides is slightly longer and more ragged than the other two. I twirl it between my fingers, accidentally drop it on the ground, retrieve and then wrap it in a tissue before putting the whole thing carefully into my trouser pocket. I take my booty back to my apartment and I am panting as I fumble with the key and then spend almost a full minute trying to get it into the lock. I take the tissue out of my pocket, confirm that I haven't lost the triangle, and then set it delicately down on my kitchen table. First, I have to verify what I think I have half-remembered from one of the newspaper reports in the last couple of days. I consult my clipping file, immaculately organized, and read through until I discover. Police confirmed that they recovered a knife at the scene of the crime, but with its tip missing. I file the clipping back in its trove and return to the table. I shudder a bit now as I open up the tissue to expose this shard of metal, which less than a week ago was used to mutilate a body. Revulsion strikes me first and I shake the tip from my hand like it is one of those spiders that I have been telling the landlady about to no avail. Fascination follows and I gingerly retrieve it from under the table and hold it in the palm of my hand. It has done a rough business and has wound up in my possession through an obvious police oversight, but I do feel that it deserves the kind of reverence due to all artifacts. I sit down again and puzzle over how this tip might have gotten broken off. The possibilities remind me of my relative forensic ignorance. Must remedy that with some intensive research at the library as I am not even sure whether it is possible, say, to break off the tip of a knife on the bone of a human body. Is the sternum hard enough to do that? The only other possibility seems to be that perhaps in the thrashing, the killer inadvertently dragged the knife point along the pavement and broke the tip off that way. I make a mental note. No, determined to be a better investigator, I actually write it down. Quote, check pavement at crime scene for knife scrape. It does occur to me that I have evidence here and that the civic-minded thing to do would be to contact the police and give it up. Perhaps, civic-mindedness aside, that is also a legal requirement. I consider for a moment doing this mostly because I don't want to end up in prison nor to attract any attention that would steal my research and writing time. My other reasoning, reasoning, 
admittedly specious on the surface, is that a piece of so-called evidence such as this will do nothing to move forward the search for the killer or help in his prosecution when he is eventually caught. The police already have the knife. What use is the tip? I pack up my treasure and put it in the eyeglass case that I keep in the sock drawer of my dresser. I have odd feelings that I can't quite identify or put a name to.